Well, I don't know about you, but I really, really need Christmas as a beacon of hope this year. And I'm so glad that as, as I look forward to this moment of lights and joy and peace and all of the things that come with Christmas, that, that this isn't just some made-up feel-good gesture that we have every winter. That Christmas didn't arise because we just needed something to get us through the bleak midwinter, but that Christmas is a remembrance of the powerful works that God has done, the ways that God promised salvation and rescue to his people, and the ways that he fulfilled that promise through the Christmas act. And so I'm so glad to be working through these different promises each and every week so that we in this moment of hopelessness and despair can, can cling all the more reliably to the power and promise of God. So this week we're going to be looking at a prophet called Malachi. Uh, and Malachi is one of many prophets that, that predicted this promise of, of Jesus, of this Messiah who would come in very specific and powerful ways to rescue God's people. And so we're going to be in Malachi chapter 3, and there are basically two parts of this prophecy that I want to talk about a little bit uh, separately. Two things that, that Malachi says specifically about the coming Messiah who would eventually be revealed to be Jesus. So let's look at Malachi 3 verse 1. So the first thing Malachi says is that God will send a messenger who will prepare the way before this coming anointed one, this Messiah. And then once the messenger has come and prepared the way, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. All right, so first of all, that, that God's saying, he's not just going to show up unannounced. You're going to know the Messiah is almost here. You're going to know that he's ready to, to start doing this work, I promise, when the messenger comes first. All right, so that's the first part of Malachi's prophecy. But now, before we get into the second part of Malachi's prophecy, I want to just set this, the, the context a little bit that Malachi's going to talk about this Messiah a little bit differently than, than maybe the, the ways we're used to hearing or certainly the ways they were used to hearing back then. See, if you've been here for any of the last few weeks, was we've been hearing these promises of God that came true in the Messiah Jesus, uh, the Messiah was described in a lot of different ways. The Messiah will come uh, as a light to the world. The world's in darkness and the Messiah will bring light. That's what we talked about the first week of the series. Or if you were here last week, that the Messiah would come as a ruler, as a conquering, victorious ruler who will take charge and authority over his people. Or if you've heard other Christmas songs or other things, you're going to hear things like the Messiah is a rescuer. He comes to rescue us you know, from death and oppression. Or maybe this one, that the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb, that he's, he's painted as this um, beautiful symbol uh, of a sacrifice to rescue us uh, from the consequences uh, of our sin. These are not the metaphors that Malachi is going to be using in Malachi 3. It's a little different. So let's, let's go back to Malachi 3 now and let's look at the metaphor he uses for this Messiah. So the messengers prepared the way. The day of the Lord will be here. The Messiah comes. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. All right, so we've got this new and very different metaphor. The Messiah will come, not as a light and all this. He'll come as 
a purifier, which is a very interesting concept. What exactly does that look like for the Messiah to be a purifier of the world, this fire or this soap that will purify things? And so let's look at the last then line of Malachi's prophecy. So this is how he describes what this purifying will look like. The Messiah says that when I come, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear, and those people do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. That's a pretty, pretty strong prophecy there. That's pretty stern stuff that Malachi is saying. So as we spend the rest of the time this morning wrestling with what exactly Malachi is describing, what he's predicting, I want to give you a little bit of context. So if you didn't know, God's people had been their own kingdom, their own country for a long time. And then because of their sin, they'd been, God had allowed them to be conquered by different nations. And most recently, they'd been conquered by Babylon. And they'd been led off uh, into exile by Babylon. They'd been forced to start new lives, uprooted from their homes and their families in the place of Babylon. And and these prophecies of the Messiah, these unbreakable promises that come true at Christmas, they've started all throughout this historical process. So the first one from Isaiah was before the conquering happened. It was Isaiah saying, hey, it's going to get real dark but there's going to be a light to the world. And then uh, they were exiled in Babylon, and there were some prophecies there that that they received. And then right when they first started to come back, that's what Dion Garrett talked about last week, this prophecy that, hey, there there have been all these foreign rulers over you for the last 70 years, but now there's going to be a, a divine ruler. The prophecy this week takes place now that the Israelites are back. They've been restored to their home country. They've been allowed to rebuild their homes, rebuild their temple, uh, and they're back where they were. And unfortunately, they've realized life isn't great. You see, they'd spent the 70 years of exile saying life is awful, life is terrible because we've been conquered, because of all of this evil that's being done to us by external forces. But if we can just get through this, If we can just get through the exile and get back to our land, get back to our country, back to our temple, everything will be fine again. God will bless us again. I feel it's a lot like how we're trying to get through a pandemic. We just keep saying, oh, if we can just get through this, if we can just get through this, we'll get back to normal someday. And that's what sustained them for 70 years. If we can just get through the exile, we'll get back to our own place, it'll be fine. But now they're back and Malachi, who's one of the religious leaders, a prophet of God, he's looking around saying, things aren't better. And some people are saying it must be because God isn't true to his promises. But Malachi is looking around saying, actually, I think it's because we'd displaced or misplaced where the problem was coming from. You see, we thought life was hard, life was terrible because of all of these external evils, because of all of these oppressors. But now that we're back in our own country, back in our own culture, back where we're in charge of ourselves again, Malachi is looking around and saying, guys, the problem's within us. It's our community. The problem wasn't out there. The problem is that there's corruption in here among our very selves, among our leaders. That's the real problem. And that's why he's calling out these perjurers and these adulterers and all of these things that are going on, not by the Babylonians, not by the pagans, but by the very people of God themselves. There's this corruption. And so in despair, Malachi cries out to God. He says, God, what's going on? Give me a prophecy. Help us to understand what you're going to do in and through this really bad place that we're finding ourselves. And that's what brings us to Malachi 3, this prophecy of the purifier that we're reading about today. 
See, Malachi is saying, look guys, there's a Messiah and he's coming to town and he sees you. He knows what you're doing, whether you're asleep, whether you're awake. He knows who's been bad. He knows who's been good. He even has this list. Guys, Malachi was predicting Santa Claus. It just occurred to me. This is what he's saying, right? He's saying that, that there's, there's this sorting that's going to happen, uh, and, and there's this naughty and nice list, and, and this Messiah, when he comes, he's going to purify us by revealing who's on which list. And in fact, Malachi's pretty clear about who's on which list, right? Let's, let's look at Malachi's version of the naughty and nice list, all right? We just read verse 5, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, unfair bosses, racial oppressors. These are the naughty people. And on the nice side, and these are from the first couple chapters of Malachi, we've got the, the faithful church folks, the the generous givers, the morally upright, those people who are faithful to their spouses, that's who's going to be on the nice list. And he lays out this prophecy, and the people at the time, they read it, and they say, yeah, sounds good to us. Let's get rid of all those naughty folks. Let's let's purge and purify um, all of the people that are on the naughty list, and and so that we who are on the nice list can have the blessings and and the the comfortable life that we would like to be having. And so this this prophecy landed pretty well for them because, of course, they were all on the nice list, anyone that read that prophecy, as are we all. But what happened then was that 400 years go by and the Messiah doesn't come. A lot of other things happen, but it's 400 years where they're waiting for this purifier to come to sort everyone out into naughty and nice uh, and to purge and purify out the ones who didn't belong on the right list. But for 400 years, God was moving the wheels of history. He was putting things in place for this rescue so that when it happened, his work would be done. His promise would be shown to be unbreakable and powerful. So we jump ahead. We jump ahead to 400 years later after Malachi's prophecy. And suddenly there's this man in in power and prophetic word who starts preaching all throughout the countryside. And his name was John the Baptist. And his prophecies were so clear, were so powerful that everyone was looking at him and they were saying, we think this is the guy. Remember how there were two parts to Malachi's prophecy? Before the Messiah comes, there's got to be a messenger first to prepare the way. And John the Baptist is pretty clearly this messenger. And, and he, in fact, owns that label himself. He says, guys, I'm the one. I'm the one preparing the way. In fact, let's look at one of John the Baptist's sermons from early in the day. This is from Matthew 3. So he's talking to all these people. They've gathered around him. And he's saying, look, guys, I'm not actually the end goal here. He says, I'm here, I baptize you with water for repentance. I'm doing my job. But after me is coming one who is far more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice a common theme? John the Baptist knows what he's alluding to here, and the people listening to him, they know too. When he says he's going to baptize you with fire, they immediately think, oh, Malachi, the refining fire guy. That's, that's the Messiah that you're talking about. And then John goes on. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's calling out Malachi's naughty and niceless very clearly. He's saying, look, some of you are going to be the wheat and the rest of you are going to get burned up in the refiner's fire. This, this chaff, the, the unworthy, the adulterers, the, the oppressors, all of those things, that's what's going to happen. And the people hear that and they think, yeah, yeah, that's what we've been looking forward to for 400 years. Thank you, John the Baptist. We can't wait to see who shows up. And who shows up? 
this guy Jesus of Nazareth. And John himself points him out. He says, that's the guy. The refiner's fire I was talking about, there he is, Jesus. He's the one who's going to do it. And so the people were so excited. They were so glad that finally this Messiah, we've been waiting 400 years, he's here. And now the purge will begin. And they just sat back and they rubbed their hands and said, all right, Jesus, show us who's, who's on the outs. Show us who you're going to finally burn out of our community. And they remembered Malachi's list. And so they brought to Jesus the people that they thought were the ones most in need of purging, right? So they brought to Jesus, look, Jesus, there's this woman. We caught her in adultery. You know what to do. And then Jesus didn't stone her to death. He forgave her. And he sent her on her way. And they were perplexed. And they said, okay, huh. All right, all right, all right. But hey, the Romans, they're oppressing us. We've got this incredibly corrupt government right now. All right, Jesus, you're, gonna, you're here to completely purge the Romans, right? And, and the centurion, one of the Roman political leaders, came to Jesus, and Jesus performed a miracle on his behalf. And people were thinking, this, this isn't the refining fire we were promised. All right, maybe he's not here for the Romans. Maybe he's here just to get the corruption uh, within our own leadership. And then there's, there's tax collectors, all these people that are, that are unfair bosses. They're, they're oppressing people with their wealth. Uh, and so, all right, Jesus, there's a tax collector. Do your thing. And Jesus went and had lunch with the tax collector. And I think their, their people's reaction was much like mine, which is when you see Jesus not refining the people he's supposed to be refining, uh, your first, your default assumption is he must have forgotten to bring his list. Right? Because, all right, Jesus, we know what you're here for. You told us in the Bible what you were coming to do. You're here to be a refiner's fire. You're here to purge the naughty ones. So you you must have left the list at home. It's fine, Jesus. I've I've got a list. I'll give you my list, Jesus. If 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 you just didn't forget, you forgot yours, that's fine. Don't remember yours, that's fine. You know what, Jesus? We've got our list. And we all have our list, don't we? that we just want to submit to God. And we say, all right, God, since, you're, since you clearly have missed the boat, here you go, here's the list, now, now do your thing. I mean, I've got mine. Here's, here's my list, right? So, I mean, there are the, no, the clearly, obviously naughty people that, come on, Jesus must be needing to purge, right? I mean, anyone going to argue with me on this? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg for Facebook alone deserves eternal fire. Right? I mean, it's, it's so clear. And, and it's also pretty clear to me who's on the nice list. Like, it's me. It's my friends. It's some of my family members. I mean, and Dolly Parton, I mean, my gosh, that woman just does everything right, right? And, and so it, when God's not doing his refining work, I, I want to just submit that to him. I'm like, okay, you clearly need, need someone to point you in the right direction, God. So here you go. Take the list and, and, and do something with it. And yet that's not what Jesus did. And you can start to understand why so many of the the religious faithful were disappointed in him. Because they were looking for a Messiah to be a rescuer, to be a conqueror, to be a ruler, to purge. And he doesn't seem to be doing it. In fact, Jesus' ministry culminates that there's this one sermon that he gives that's considered the, the, the single most important sermon, the, the culmination of all of his teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the crowds flocked to him because they wanted to hear what this Messiah was going to say. And, and they were especially ready for him to finally just lay it out clearly who God hates. 
If you're here to purify, if you're here to be refiner's fire, tell us who's out. Tell us who's on the naughty list so that we can know, so that we can start to purify ourselves. Who does God hate? God hates the Romans, right? God, God hates these people. God hates these sinners. God hates who? And instead, Jesus started his sermon saying, God blesses those who are poor in spirit. God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who are humble. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. God blesses those who are merciful. God blesses you whose hearts have been purified. And there it was, the the code word that they were looking for. God blesses those whose hearts have been purified. And he's suddenly painting a picture that this purification that they've been looking forward to for 400 years is not this external separating of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, the naughty and the nice. He's looking at them individually and saying, your heart needs to be purified. And maybe that sounds like a a good gesture, a kind and true sentiment to you right now today, but I'll tell you this, it was offensive to the religious of that day. Because all of these holy, righteous people, the people that Malachi had clearly put on the nice list, the church attenders, the generous givers, the ones who were faithful to their spouses, all of those people are saying, how dare you minimize the evil that is going on in this world and say that this, this refining fire we've been looking forward to for 400 years is that you want to purify my heart? My heart's fine. It's all their actions that are the problem, that are the reason for the brokenness and the evil in the world today. And what's interesting is that for all of Jesus' gentleness, his, his unwillingness to burn and purge the adulterers and the tax collectors and the oppressors, there was one group of people he was very willing to speak with harsh, refining fire language. And it was to all of those upright, faithful, church-going folks themselves. Here's one passage from later in Matthew where Jesus is speaking and he says, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites!' You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. See, they were looking for an external purification. Jesus is saying, you've missed the point. It's the internal purification that actually has results and the external. And it's easy to read this section of scripture and say, oh, we just, we just had the naughty and nice list wrong. Apparently, it turns out that the religious upright, the, the leaders, the Pharisees, we thought they were on the nice list. Apparently, they were on the naughty list too. But that itself is a misreading of what Jesus is trying to say. He's not saying that we got the, the people on the naughty nice list wrong. He's saying that the whole naughty nice list concept is missing the boat that there is an internal purification that has to happen and that that's his business as a Messiah. It is not to outwardly purge the external problems with the world, and there are many, but that to purge that would be treating the symptom of the problem. And Jesus isn't here to treat symptoms. He's here to transform and heal people in a holistic way.
You see, here's what's interesting. In the Old Testament law of Moses, God provided three ways. Three ways for human beings to be cleansed and purified so that they could be holy and acceptable and clean in God's sight. And in Malachi 3, that prophecy of the Messiah, he name checks two of those three methods. Right? The first two of the three methods for cleansing people are by water and by fire. And that's what, exactly what Malachi described. He described someone who would come with launderer's soap, who would wash people clean with water. Someone who would come as a refiner's fire, who would burn out the impurities of people. But Malachi pretty obviously omitted the third thing that brings cleansing and purification to God's people. Blood. And so Jesus, instead of burning up the infidels, instead of shoving soap into the mouths of his people, he died on a cross. He shed his blood for the purification, not just of a few select people, but for the entire world. And he let his blood do this purifying internal work that people had not even fathomed until he came. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't suddenly purify the corrupt government and and Rome just went away. It didn't happen. When he died on the cross, uh, poverty wasn't immediately eliminated. It it stayed. When when Jesus died on the cross, the justices and the judges didn't suddenly start, start making fair and just rulings. None of these things were changed. None of these externals were purified. But when Jesus died on the cross, his blood purified your heart and mine. And that is ultimately the far more powerful act. Because it is only when God's people allow their hearts to be purified that all of these external wrongs begin to go right. You could eliminate corrupt judge after corrupt judge until we become agents of purified hearts ourselves. All of those things are just messing with the symptom and the core problem, the core cause is going to continue corrupting society. See, this work of Jesus was truly a purifying work, but not in the way anyone had expected. A few years later, one of Jesus' most influential followers, a man named Paul, he was reflecting on this act, reflecting on how Jesus' purifying work was truly meant to be understood and used as a force for change for ourselves and for the world. And this is what Paul wrote uh, in this letter to the church at Corinth. As he's reflecting uh, on Jesus' sacrifice, the blood of Christ that purified us, he said what happened in that moment was that Jesus built a foundation of a new building in each and every one of our hearts. They purified our hearts with his presence to build something new. And now he's reflecting on that. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, in your hearts on Jesus, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Each of you, everyone individually, should be very thoughtful and careful about what they're building on this foundation in their hearts. And here's the thing, the foundation is not uh, not under our control. The foundation is one that's already been laid, and that's Jesus Christ. So we who have been saved by God, we don't have any control over that foundation. The foundation is Jesus. Now, the part we have control over is what we build on that foundation. And Paul says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or 
maybe even straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day of judgment, the second coming of Jesus, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with that refiner's fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, right, if they built on that foundation of Jesus Christ with gold and silver, then, and it survives and it's refined, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one barely escaping through the flames. This is an incredibly powerful and important verse, and one that I don't think gets enough play or screen time in church circles. And so I want to read this one more time. Because Paul is not describing our salvation and our, and our purification in the way that we're used to it. I think we're, we're so often used to the church talking about salvation as an on-off switch. Like, oh, you're in, you're out. Did Jesus die for you? You're done. And, and Paul is saying, there's actually another dimension to this that we, we ignore at our peril. All right, so I want to read this one more time. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care in their own hearts. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or maybe wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day of judgment will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, I want to leave this verse up for a minute as, as I reflect on this passage with you today. There are a few really critical things that we need to make sure we understand and that Paul is doing a great job of simplifying and making clear for us. See, this picture of a purifier, a finer's fire, uh, is one that is so true, is so important, and Malachi set the stage so beautifully for it. But in the same way that Malachi was saying, hey, we, we misunderstood, we thought the problem was out there, but really the problem is internal to our community. Jesus was honing and refining even that concept, saying, well, and just like you think maybe the problem is even in your community, it's actually that the problem is in you. And so this refining fire picture has a few things that we need to understand. And then the first one I want to start is right here at verse 15. We thought, no, stay there, stay on 15 for me for a second. We thought that this refiner was going to come and he was going to, to reject and purge other people. That, that this re refining, purifying process was one that said there are some people that are in and some people that are out. But I want you to notice in verse 15 is that's actually not true. The refiner's fire is only for people who are already in. The refiner's fire is only for people who have already been saved by the blood of Christ, claimed by God himself, and then the refiner's fire comes into play. Because I want you to notice what happens if our efforts fall short. 
If you are someone who builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ with straw or wood or paper, something that gets burned up completely, the consequence of that is not you go to hell. The consequence of that is not you are, you are tested and found not worthy. Notice what he says, that if, if you do a bad job, if, if we don't build well on the foundation of Christ, if it's burned up, we will suffer loss, but we will yet be saved. Because God doesn't even bother refining anyone that's not already been claimed and saved by Jesus. Refining is purely an internal process. It's for those who are already in, those who are part of the community. And so that brings me to my first of things I want to make sure we we learn and understand about this. That purifying is not a rejection. It's not the tool that God uses. There are some people who will be rejected. There are some people specifically who reject Christ's salvation. But that's not what purifying is for. Purifying assumes that you are already in, you are already saved, Jesus Christ is in your heart, and God is not looking to disqualify or eliminate or reject you. Purifying is not a rejection. So, so what is it? What's going on? Well, so on the positive way, purifying, more importantly, is personal. This is the, the point Jesus was making in all of his actions, all of his sermons, and, and in his ultimate sacrifice on the cross, is that purifying is not a means by which we fix the evils out there. Purifying is the means God has given us to fix the evils in here. Which means it's ultimately between me and God himself. That purifying is not something that I can look at someone else or look at another group and, and say, you need to be purified. I don't know. The only thing I can say with any authority is I need to be purified. And I'm sure you do too. But that's for you and God to figure out, just like it's for me and God to wrestle with my own purifying journey. And again, it doesn't mean we don't have obligations that are external, but they're not purifying ones. We might have to take actions and advocacy and fight for for justice in the world, but just to recognize that is not a purifying act. That's now advocacy. That's now protecting others. Purifying, though, is between me and God. And And then this final lesson That if you, if you walk away with nothing, nothing else from today, I hope you'll lock this in. That if you are experiencing the refiner's fire, if you are feeling that crucible of pain that comes from external circumstances rubbing off all the rough edges uh, and bringing strain and despair into your life, it's so tempting to feel like that's, that's some sort of a judgment on you, that that's something uh, that you've earned or that, or that you've messed up and that's why life is so hard. Nobody bothers to purify dirt or dung or paper. If you are feeling that purifying pain, I want you to lock in right now. It's because you are the most valuable thing God knows. That God sees you and he values you so highly that he says you are worth all of this refining work. Just like a piece of gold in the ground, it doesn't look like much initially. It's got dirt all over it. It's got other minerals in there. And you have to take that gold and recognize that there's value there. And that's what makes it worth the long and arduous process of refining it. 
But when you do refine it, that, that gold that already had such value, now it shines for the world to see. And, and whatever's going on in your life that's making you feel that life is too hard or that you're despairing, recognize it for what it is, that it wouldn't be happening to you if you didn't have divine value placed on you. That you are worth everything God has, not just his death on a cross, but his continued refining work in your life. Because God wants you and me to shine. He wants our value to be seen for all the world and for us to be useful in making the change that we'd like to see in the world. But it starts with that internal purification. Now, one, one last thought on that is that purifying, because it's painful, because, because it's a long and arduous process, it, it, can feel, it can feel not like a hopeful promise. It can feel like, um, like something that's scary and intimidating. In fact, I had a good friend a few years ago, and, and she was a, a woman who bore her brokenness on her sleeve. You knew everything that had scarred this young woman. You knew, you knew about all of her eating disorders, all of her trauma, all of her patterns of sin and brokenness, and she just had them out there. And when she came across this concept that God was wanting to refine and purify her, it, it, it brought up fear in her because she said, I don't know who I am without these things. If I don't have these brokennesses, these have become such a part of my identity. If God takes them away, I'm not going to be me anymore. And rather than feeling like a promise of hope, it became a burden that who she was needed to be completely done away with in order for her to receive the goodness and transformation of God. Now, I've felt a similar fear and concern myself. And if you ever have too, I want to share with you a story that comes from C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. And in this story, C.S. Lewis is describing that the, the passage of people as they enter into heaven after their death. And there's one man in particular who's standing on the threshold of heaven, but he can't get in because his sin of lust is wrapped around him like a red lizard. And it's sitting on his shoulder and it has its tail wrapped around his neck and he can't get into heaven because to get into heaven, you have to be purified. You can't be bringing your sins and your lusts into heaven. And there's an angel that's met the man right at the threshold of heaven and the angel says to him, do you want me to kill the lizard? And the man is so torn and conflicted. On the one hand, he does. He, he wants it struck dead. He wants it, but he knows it's going to be painful. He knows it's going to be hard. This lizard has been a lifelong companion for him. He knows who he is in conjunction with this lizard. And, and, and he waffles, and, 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 the, and the, the lizard puts up a fight. But finally, in despair and hope, he says to the angels, yes, please, yes, kill the lizard, please, because I can't do it myself. And the angel pulls his sword and strikes the lizard dead. And in that moment, as that lizard falls dead to the ground, the man grows into the fullness of who he was always intended to be. And it's beautiful. But that's not the most beautiful part. That not only was the man himself transformed into what he had meant to be, the lizard struck dead on the ground itself became something new. And it came back to life, but this time not as a lizard, but as a white stallion. And the man jumped on this thing, this thing that he'd known all of his life that had held him back, but now it had been redeemed and transformed. And he jumped on the stallion and it, and it rode with him all the way to the heights to meet Jesus in heaven. 
See, this picture of purifying that understands that you have value, it means that everything about you was something valuable that had maybe just been corrupted. And and that for you to be redeemed and purified doesn't mean that it goes away. It means that it itself gets transformed. Let's look at this naughty nice list in, in a much more accurate way. See, the naughty nice list is just you. It's not you compared to other people. It's literally just you. And you have things about you that that right now are holding you back. That they are sins. They are brokenness. They are things that that were not intended by God to be a part of your identity. Your anger, your fear, your shame, your striving, your lust. And yet they don't go away when you let Jesus be a purifying fire in your heart. They themselves get redeemed. That anger that's become so uniquely a part of you that that people know about you, it's not like you just suddenly become a peaceful person. You don't have anger anymore. It's that suddenly now you're able to channel that anger and use it to advocate for justice for others. Or that thing that brings you shame that again, it's been a part of you your whole life. You've been struggling with your whole life. It, It doesn't disappear. That shame turns into a unique abundance of compassion for those who are struggling with the same shameful things. And as C.S. Lewis describes in The Great Divorce, even your lusts, even these things that that feel so perverse and, and, and yucky, they themselves become the passions, the desires that drive you to the good things that God wants you to seek with your whole heart. Here's this final quote from that story from C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, nothing about us Not even the best and the noblest things can go on as it now is. And also nothing about us, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. When I say that you are valuable, I'm saying that there is nothing about you that God himself didn't design from the beginning to make you unique and special. And yes, it might be covered in grime and muck. There might be impurities. It might've been corrupted by sin, but it's not because that thing about you is wrong. It's just because it needs to be purified and redeemed. And all of the evils in the world, they are things that need to be dealt with and need to be addressed. We as God's people are intended to be his agents of restoration and justice. But the way we do that is not primarily by trying to purge and purify the external things around us. It's by every day submitting our hearts to this purifying Messiah who came not to reject and purge us or anyone, but came to make sure that our hearts shone as brightly as he had always intended them to from the dawn of time. The more we let that purifying fire take hold in us, the more we let it shape and mold and refine us, the more effective we will be, the more hope we will have and be able to be spreaders of right here, right now this Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, right now I ask for you to come into this place. I ask for you to dwell in our hearts the way you promised, the way 
that when you conquered death on the cross, you placed a foundation in each and every one of our hearts. And so Lord, right now, help us. Help us in faith and in hope to submit our hearts to you. Help us to trust you that what you do, it might be painful, it might be hard, but it's for our good and to ultimately make us the most valuable, beautiful versions of ourselves. So Lord, right here, right now, bring your refining fire. Purify our hearts. Make us clean. We pray in your name. Amen.